If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Calling all History Extra podcast listeners. We want to hear from you. We're currently conducting some research about our podcast. So please enter our survey for your chance to win a £100 Waterstones gift card. It shouldn't take any longer than 10 minutes. And as a thank you for taking part, UK residents who complete the survey will be given the opportunity to enter our prize draw for the chance to win one of two £100 e-gift cards to spend at Waterstones. The survey will be available to complete until 11.59pm on Sunday the 4th of October 2020. You can find the link in our episode description. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. This month marks the 400th anniversary of the Mayflower setting sail from Plymouth to reach America. Today's podcast guest is James Evans, author of Emigrants, Why the English Sailed to the New World. James has also written a feature on the Mayflower's voyage in the October issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. Our world history editor, Matt Elton, spoke to James about the voyage and whether its significance has been overstated. The voyage of the Mayflower is one of those things that I think has quite a lot of name recognition, but people may not know uh, the sort of details. Can you very broadly, just at the start, sketch the outline of, of what it is we talk about when we talk about the Mayflower? Well, people, I mean, it's one of the, the Mayflower is one of the best known ships in the world. And people, you know, almost everyone knows, uh, has heard of the Mayflower. 
what people tend to assume is that it was the first time English people went to America, which is not quite the case because, as you will know, people have been to English people have been to America before then, and a colony like Virginia was was had already been set up. But nevertheless, it was one of the first ships to go to America, and it's become this kind of great foundational moment that is, is seen as being the foundation foundational moment for the English people who went to America and the foundation of what became the United States of America. Um, and so it has this huge kind of mythic um, foundational moment status um, as being the moment that the English people went to North America and founded what has become the United States of America and has, has seemed to have extraordinary importance for that reason. Hmm. And we'll talk about that mythic status a bit later in the interview. Um, for now, though, what is the background behind this voyage? Who was who was travelling and what was the reason that they left in the first place? Well, I mean, as, as a lot of people know... Um, the people who went were largely, I mean, well, the the pilgrims who went, they were, I, I was going to say largely, but they were not the majority of the people who went, but they went largely for religious reasons because they were um, radical Protestants who were not comfortable with, with the direction that religion was taking in England at the time. Um, what is less well known, of course, is that the Mayflower was not the first time they'd left England, but the, but the second time. I mean, they'd already gone to Holland um, they'd already gone to Leiden, first to Amsterdam, then to Leiden. Um, and it was only uh, more than a decade after that that they decided to move again. Um, and as a result, a, a minority of them booked to travel on the Mayflower and went across the Atlantic to, to America. The um, the pilgrims were had already left England and were living in Leiden. Um, in, in the Netherlands at the time, there was a protracted um, conflict going on with with the Catholic Spanish, um, who had long controlled that area of Europe, um, and a, a struggle for independence been going on between the Dutch and the Spanish, and a, a period of peace had been agreed, but it, but it was always a period of peace that was only going to last ten years, and that period was coming to an end, and so there was always a sense that. Um, and, you know, a city like Leiden, where they'd been living, had been sacked by the Spanish already and deeply embedded in people's consciousness was the, the horror of what had happened before, you know, the immense suffering, the number of people who died when the Spanish had sacked the city before. Um, and there was always this sense that this sort of um, horror was going to happen again um, and that, you know, people spoke about the hearing at their at their backs, the the, the, the beating of drums the beating of, of war drums, which were likely to return. And, and as the end of the 1610s drew near, people were more and more conscious that this was something that was about to happen. And so a minority of the people, I mean, there were probably about 500 of that group living in Leiden at the time, uh, a minority of them, probably less than 100 actually of the, of the pilgrims, decided that they were going to relocate again. And some of them returned to, to England at booked the the Mayflower and and the Speedwell actually and 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 made the voyage again to the west across the Atlantic to to America and the reason why they were they were moving again was as I say largely because they feared that um the place where they're living was about to suffer um a a return to the sort of the, the un, un, un instability and violence that it had suffered before um and they thought that 
civilization in Europe at the time was at a very advanced stage that they, they felt that God's kind of the destiny that he had established for Europe was at a relatively advanced stage. But whereas in America on the west of the Atlantic, it was at a much less advanced stage and that they would be able to travel across there and, and it would be a more, a, a more peaceful place for them to live and to exist and to do God's work. How much do we know about the individuals who um, made the voyage and how many how many people were on board? I mean, needless to say, I mean, people have researched them at length and, and how much we know about them varies enormously. I mean, some we hardly know anything about them at all and some of them we know, you know, a reasonable amount about them. I mean, there are lots of images that people, that people have painted of the Mayflower. The, the reality, though, is there is no contemporary image of the ship. So all of the images of the ship are somewhat imaginary. I mean, they're, they're illustrations of what was a fairly c- typical for the time ship of the, of the sort of size that we know it was. We know it was roughly 100 feet long, it was roughly 25 feet wide. There were around about 100 passengers. There were probably, we don't know exactly how many crew, but it's probably around about 30. So something like 130 people on board Interestingly, the, the the number of people on board, when the voyage was planned, they were actually going to go in two ships, not one. There was another ship called the Speedwell, which was also going to make the voyage across the Atlantic. And it was the Speedwell, actually, which brought many of the passengers back across the channel from, from Leiden to, to England. Um, the reason why the Speedwell didn't go was it was found to be very leaky, very un, it was described as being as leaky as a sieve, and, and it was for that reason that they stopped in Plymouth again, having left Southampton, to try and repair the damage and, and to make it seaworthy. It was only when they failed to do that that a lot, the, a lot of the passengers from the Speedwell then came on board the Mayflower as well. And for that reason, there were more people on the Mayflower at the time in terms of the size of the ship and the number of people on board than had ever crossed the Atlantic before. And as a result, you know, we, we, the, the Mayflower has become this mythic ship. We might all be talking about the Speedwell as well, but we're not because the Speedwell didn't go. So all these people were crammed onto this uh, vessel that hadn't really been necessarily designed to have so many people on no. board. What was the voyage like? All we really know, I mean, we're relying a little bit on contemporary accounts, which don't always answer the questions that we want answered. Because... The attempts have been made to to mend the speedwell, as I say. They were quite late in the year by the time that they actually left. Um, and the second half of the year is usually in the North Atlantic, what's known as hurricane season. So it's usually a lot rougher, the winds are much higher. What's known about the, the voyage is that, broadly speaking, the first half of it was reasonably okay and reasonably calm. And the second half of it was pretty rough and pretty, you know, stormy and and people spoke a lot about the you know the the difficulty and the storms that they suffered on the on the voyage and it's you know it's important to remember that a large percentage of the people in england at the time would never literally never have seen the sea before they they couldn't swim they'd never been on the sea before so the idea of kind of sailing across the atlantic is is a pretty extraordinary thing to attempt i mean obviously for for most of the pilgrims, you know, they would have sailed before because they would have sailed from England to, to Holland. But they, nevertheless, most of them couldn't swim. And the, the idea of being on, on, on a ship on the, on the sea, whether it's rough or not, was an extraordinary and terrifying thing. And how long did it take to reach their destination? It took around about two months, I think. So 
in, in comparison with the much quicker journeys which which ships have have made since, and you know what would now be considered a good voyage for a sailing ship across the Atlantic, it took a very long time because of the way that the prevailing winds work. It was actually much quicker coming the other way than it was going to America when the Mayflower eventually sailed back to England the following year. It made the journey in a month or so, but this was quite normal. And where did they land, and how far away was that from where they'd intended uh, to reach? Well, partly as a result of the storms and the bad weather that they suffered, they actually landed a fair amount further north than they'd intended to. So they landed in Massachusetts. They'd actually intended to land on the River Hudson, somewhere around about where New York now is. The reason this is, of course, crucially important was that if had they landed where they meant to land around the River Hudson, they would have been in the territory of Virginia as it was formerly then existed and therefore they would have been in the territory where the the Virginia company had a patent. Because they were north of that, they were conscious that they were potentially landing in somewhere that for which no patent existed. And it was for that reason that iconic documents like the Mayflower Compact and so forth had to be signed. A brief attempt was made to sail south from where they were to, to try and find where they'd intended to land, but they found it too difficult to do that, to sail south against prevailing currents and so forth. So they ended up going back, and given the adva- you know, how, how late in the year it was already and how cold it was and the, the nearness of winter and so forth, they, they went back to where they'd been. So they ended up in Massachusetts. I'm always fascinated by this idea that you've sailed across the ocean and you've arrived in this new territory and you've somehow got to make a life for yourself. What were the conditions like uh, in the first weeks and months they were there? And how difficult was that? I mean, it's unimaginable. This idea that, you you know, emigration for people is a very big deal now. By and large, when people emigrate, they are not only staying in in contact with everyone they know, they have, you know, phones and emails and but they're also moving to places which, by and large, you know, houses exist, and shops exist, and they, all of the things that we might expect are there. When they when they arrived, you know, none of these things existed. There was no houses. They had to find their own food. It was, as I say, very late in the year. It was very cold. It was unimaginably cold, as far as they were concerned, because the you know the winters were more extreme than they were used to in in England at the time. Partly because none of these things existed. They spent the first winter on the ship itself, and they only really disembarked the following spring. It's hard to imagine how difficult it must have been, but there they were living on this ship. I mean, sickness broke out during the winter. We've talked already about how cramped it was and how many people were on the ship. So it's hard to imagine, but it must have been very hard indeed. Mm. And it was a really hard winter, wasn't it? It was a hard winter. Well, as I say, as far as they were concerned, it was, it was an exceptionally hard winter because they weren't used to winters like it and and as i say sickness broke out amongst the passengers that winter and something like between a third and a half of them died um during the winter both of the passengers and the crew so there's no question at all that it was an unbelievably hard period you mentioned uh, the mayflower compact there can you just talk us through um what that was and the importance of that document well, it was signed because they were, and they were conscious of being, you know, outside the remit of the Virginia Company, which had its own patent already, and they were aware that because they were outside it, the behaviour it kind of imposed upon them was not imposed upon passengers, and they were worried that passengers might simply have decided that they were not bound by any rules and they could just up sticks and leave or or and they felt the need for some form of government some form of a patent and so therefore as a result they 
they signed this document. We looked at now, it, it's obviously it's it was signed only by men. It wasn't signed by women. So, so there were aspects of it that we would think unacceptable and, and strange and all the rest of it. But, but at the same time, it was for the time unbelievably radical because the number of men who signed it was very high. I mean, servants didn't, but free men by and large did, even if they were labourers. Given that at the time it was quite unusual for labourers to be granted that kind of status, it was it was a, a very significant and very radical document. You know, one can understand why it has the importance that it does in, in American history. And what did it achieve? What did it set out to do? It set out essentially to create a, a an agreed um, system of government that would bind them all, and that they would all agree to be to be ruled by. It essentially, created a sort of structure that, that everyone in it accepted. So I think um, 10 years after 1620, an official patent was granted for the company. But nevertheless, whereas the Mayflower Compact could then have been entirely forgotten about, it wasn't. It clearly had significance, um, even when it had been superseded by a genuine um, legal document. We, we know we can't understate its importance and we can I know, entirely understand why it's continued to have importance since. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. But I understand why the Mayflower has the position it does. And, I, and, and, and uh, you know, as I say, with, with caveats, I do, um, I, I would support it. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. So heading back to uh, that first period, they've got through the first winter, they've survived um, to some extent. I mean, how 
How did they emerge following that first winter? How many people were left? And what kind of society did they first create uh, there? Well, I mean, they something like, uh, as I say, between a third and a half of them, about, around about 40 people, I think, from about 100 had died during the winter. One assumes that the same sort of percentage of the crew had also died. So they were un- unquestionably, you know, a diminished group. You know, they they had already um, established the location for, for the settlement that they were going to create. And they they began to to work when the weather warmed up a little bit sufficiently to to allow that they began to move onto land and and to live there the, you know they they had already um agreed upon who was going to govern the society you know as a result they were able to establish this small you know fairly kind of autocratic society by our standards in terms of that you know they had agreed who was going to govern them and all the rest of it gradually over the, over the course of that decade they were a, you know the society was able to establish itself to establish relations with um uh, you know the, the native american communities in the area and so forth it never rivaled the the much larger immigration of puritans to the east coast which began you know at the, at, towards the end of that decade so in in some ways uh, you know as I, I referred to mayflower as being mythic in the in american history but it clearly in in reality it was swamped um that you know the numbers of people who came on what was called the Winthrop fleet after John Winthrop who led it and who moved to that you know moved to new england in the course of the 1630s in particular was very much larger than the number of people who'd gone to Plymouth, and so you know, it is, you know, clearly, we you know when we look back, the ideals that that inspired the pilgrims who went to to Plymouth were swamped in reality by by ideals which we would consider much less appealing, about which there's much more to criticise. Came to New England afterwards. I'm interested in this sort of gradual shift from sort of tolerance of the indigenous people they came into contact with, with something kind of darker and less tolerant. You mentioned Winthrop there. Is he one of the key figures in this shift, do you think? Yes, I do, in the sense that um, the relations between um, the people who were part of the Winthrop fleet um, were part of the Puritan society that was set up and as I say, which was much larger and which wants the the, um, the pilgrims in Plymouth, was always a great deal less welcoming and a, gr- a great deal more judgmental. We, we, it's much less appealing to us um, when we look back at it in terms of its attitudes, both to women and to and to people of other races. And one can understand why um, it's not been seized upon as the kind of iconic moment in the, in the same way as the Mayflower has. But the reality was that they largely swamped the the, the people who w- were living in Plymouth at the time, because their numbers were so much larger. To what can we attribute the differences in attitude between the Mayflower colony and then this other larger later group of people? It's 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 hard to say. I mean, if we're honest, I think the um, attitudes of the people in New England under in the in the Winthrop fleet were probably more typical of the, the sort of attitudes that were held at the time. They also had, a, you know, much more than people on the, you know, Mayflower obviously did a a, a very strong sense that they were performing um, God's work and that they, they were kind of divinely entitled to do as they liked and to do destroy um, whatever stood in their way for precisely the reason that they felt they were doing God's work. As I say, the attitudes both both to other races and also to to, to women amongst them were it's much less appealing certainly to 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 someone who 
of the uh, you know someone today who reads reads the writing of, of someone like John Winthrop, for instance. How much do we know about what the indigenous people made of these new arrivals? Well, we don't know very much. I mean, there was clearly an enormous variety. I mean, you know, it, it's wrong to talk about the indigenous people as if there was one group of indigenous people. There were an enormous number of groups of indigenous people, and some of them were very welcoming, and some of them were anything but. I mean, it's very notable, for instance, that when you look at the English people who emigrated, an enormous amount depended upon where exactly in America they landed. And so there had been stories which circulated in England at the time about horrendous massacres which had happened at Jamestown. And, you know, it, you know clearly relations there were not, were not, were not good with, with the, the local Native Americans, but, but also... There were other places where, you know, English ships owed everything to, to the fact that they were treated with enormous kindness and welcomed and, and given, you know, food when they needed food, just as people in Plymouth did, you know, who, who remembered and, and developed, you know, very kind, welcoming relations. So there really was no, no single pattern of the, the ways in which the, these interactions happened. An enormous amount depended upon where exactly they landed and who they interacted with. Is it possible to see the story of the Mayflower as part of a larger story that would eventually lead to the American Revolution? Yes, I mean, I suppose it, I suppose it is. I mean, it's, it's, it's tricky. I mean, as I say, you know, the story of the Mayflower has become as a, a very major part of American mythology. There is clearly part of one that feels like it, it it's been you know it's its importance is is being overstated it's re- regarded as being the first english ship to arrive it has this kind of foundational importance given to it which belies the reality which is that it wasn't the first english ship to arrive somewhere like jamestown was had been founded already you know it, it owes its importance very clearly to the fact that People find documents like the Mayflower Compact and the the, the personalities of some of the people involved and their their relations with the Native Americans and so forth. They find that congenial. They know more about them than they do about many many of the other ships that arrived. So it's been attributed much much greater significance than it probably deserves in terms of its its you know how it genuinely coexisted with other English or European ships which which did arrive at the same time. But at the same time, there you know there was something very remarkable about many of the attitudes that they did have. As I say, it, it's wrong to regard them as wholly positive. But, you know, it's impossible not to to forget that what seems to us, you know, when we when you look at the religious ideas that that motivated many of the people who went on the Mayflower, they believed very passionately. You know, they were Calvinists. They believed very passionately that in in this idea of being elected at birth. This idea, which which we find very distasteful, that a divine decision was made at people's birth, whether they were chosen or not chosen, and that um, there was nothing one could do about this. This is not a, an idea that sits very comfortably with almost anyone today. On the other hand, partly as a result of this idea, they dispense another idea, which we also find very distasteful, the, you know, the idea that you were chosen at birth to be powerful and rich, or uh, or to be powerless and poor according to your place in the social hierarchy you know the ideas which underpin the mayflower compact and which kind of largely do away with this old european aristocracy this idea that only some some people on board 
are entitled to to sign a document like the Mayflower Compact or to to occupy any any kind of position of importance. That 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 old idea is is largely done away with. As I say, that idea we find very appealing. It's two sides of the same coin, really, and we I think we need to remember both sides. Which leads me nicely on to my next question, which is, I mean, obviously we're marking the 400th anniversary of this event this year. How do you think we should properly see it and its place in American history more generally, I suppose? I mean, I, I know, I, as, as I say, I'm, I'm a little bit torn. I, I, I do feel like it's been overstated. It almost couldn't could not have been overstated in the sense that the importance that's been ascribed to it. it, it clearly, it, it, it wasn't quite the foundation that it's been seen as being it wasn't the first english ship to arrive um as the people who arrived were largely swamped by people who came after them um often with very different attitudes and and ideals so it's wrong to see it as quite the this extraordinary foundational moment that it has been seen on the other hand it was genuinely quite extraordinary there are things about it which are are both very appealing and which are extraordinary. So I, I do think it's, you know, you know I, I understand why it's being marked as it is being marked. Um, I understand why the 400th anniversary is something that's of importance. I do think it's, uh, you know, significant. Uh, I you know I, I, I do find it, you know, implausible, this this idea that, you know, we will replace this kind of foundational moment with, with you know, whatever, a kind of 1619 idea that, you know, we'll replace that with the arrival of the first black American slaves or something, you know, some other kind of moment. I mean, I'm not belittling, you know, that experience either, but but I understand why the Mayflower has the position it does. You know, as I say, with, with caveats, I do, I, I would support it. That was James Evans. His book, Emigrants, Why the English Sailed to the New World, is on sale now, published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson. You can also read James's feature on the Mayflower in the October issue of BBC History magazine. That's on sale now and also includes features on the death of Anne Boleyn, the collapse of the Sikh Empire, medieval eel rents and 1980s nuclear panic. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in tomorrow when Sudhir Hazari Singh will be speaking about the Haitian revolutionary Toussaint Louverture.